Good morning. Those joining us online, good morning. Good to be with you. We're turning in our Bibles now toward the back of the Older Testament. We're in the fifth of an eight-part series regarding the second coming of Jesus Christ. We're using Zechariah's chapter 12 through 14 chapters as the means to understand how all this begins to fit together. And so if you'd make your way there, chapter 12, 13, 14 is the general sphere of things, but today we're looking at chapter 13, verses 7 through 9, building off of what we've covered in prior weeks. Next week, and the one to follow, uh, I'll be dealing with the Battle of Armageddon, as it's depicted in Zechariah chapter 14, if you'd like to get a head start and understand uh, the ultimate battle that is still to come. Today, three verses to help us to understand these things, which serve in many ways as a bridge toward what we will be, what we will be evaluating next week and the coming. Here now, Zechariah, 5th century B.C. prophet, writes these words. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd. Against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. I'll turn my hand against the little ones. In the whole land, declares the Lord, two-thirds shall be cut off and perish. One-third shall be left alive. Now I'll put this third into the fire and refine them as one refines silver and test them as gold is tested. And they'll call upon my name and I will answer them. I will say, they are my people. And they will say, the Lord is my God. So we're gonna be exploring these verses, just three of them today building off of what we've covered in prior weeks, and it serves as the bridges to what we'll be discovering in the coming weeks about that ultimate battle. Let's look to our Lord together in prayer. Father, for those watching online, for those in prior service, for those gathered in this, collectively now we're coming into your presence. We've offered you praise through song. We worship you through tithes and offerings. And now we've reached that pivotal point where we open up the scriptures and we ask, what is it that God has said? How do we take changeless truths and apply them to these changing times? Things are changing rapidly, exponentially, and we need something that will serve as a, a fixed point, and that is your word, a focal point that helps us to understand how past relates to present, how present relates to future, all of this under your sovereign care. And while you're working globally, at the same time, Lord, you are working personally and internally in people's hearts. You're an internal physician. You 
go where nobody else goes and sees what no one else sees. And you're with us. You see the tears on the pillows late at night. You see the joy in the face in the midst of the day. You see the highs, you see the lows, and you see the connections and the interconnectedness that we have with others around us. Family dynamics, job-related situations, the one who has reached a point where maybe he just feels spent. He's given so much, and he's trying to reach in to figure out what more can I give. We thank you for that man, for that woman, and pray that they will find strength in their inner sphere to be able to draw upon you at their time of need. You know the heart of the believer, but you know the heart of the unbeliever, maybe a secularist, maybe a religionist. But nonetheless, what we're saying at this point is that we came into this world sinful by nature, and what we desperately needed was the one who came to die in our place for our sins, Jesus Christ. Warm these hearts, engage these minds, shape these wills. Again, our Father, we've come here to see Jesus and him only. And we're praying these things again now in Jesus' name. Amen. Philip Keller, in his wonderful book on the 23rd Psalm, uh, gives us insight into an individual he considered to be an ideal shepherd. I recall so clearly, he writes, standing under the blazing equatorial sun of Africa, watching the native herds being led to their own water, owner's water wells. And some of these were enormous, hand-hewn caverns cut out from the sandstone formation along the sandy rivers. And they were like great rooms chiseled out of rocks with ramps running down to the water trough at the bottom. Uh, the herds, the flocks, they were led down to these deep cisterns where cool, clear, clean water awaited them. And then I noted it, and I admired it. Down in the well, was the shepherd, the owner of the sheep, bailing water to satisfy the flock. It was hard, heavy, hot work. Perspiration poured off the body of the shepherd, whose skin glistened under the strain and heat of his labor. And as I stood there watching the animals quench their thirst at the still waters, I was again immensely impressed by the fact that everything hinged and depended upon the diligence of this shepherd. It was only through his energy, his efforts, his sweat, his strength, could the sheep be satisfied. And immediately our minds go to that passage in John chapter 10, verse 11. I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life 
for the sheep. What's extraordinary when you and I canvass the scriptures is that from old to new, the motif of the shepherd stands out. Abraham was a shepherd. Isaac, Jacob, Jacob's sons. And well before all of them, in that early account in Genesis, stood Abel. When you reach the point in Exodus, you begin to see that the idea of the shepherd's staff was an illustration of leadership. And there stood Moses with staff in hand as he was taking on the court of Pharaoh. And then ultimately we find that one <coughs> we know who was tending his flocks outside of Bethlehem, when he would be called upon to come and join his brothers, and it would be there that Samuel would be able to say, this is the one, and David would guide and direct the people. The shepherd motif finds its ultimate significance, of course, in Jesus Christ. But what fascinates us in today's study, the fifth and eight parts in Zechariah 12 through 14, is that what God is now doing is that he is saying that this shepherd who came once will come again. And this will be a very powerful statement with regard to the second coming of Christ that bridges and builds off of the first coming and would have us understand better what it is that God wants to communicate to us. So what I want to do now is we're looking at these, these three verses together is to simply draw out two images that's found in these verses that help us to better understand what it is that God wants to communicate to us. And the first comes out of verse 7, and we're going to pen it like this, as you and I, together as we consider Christ's return. I want to note here out of verse 7 the imagery of the shepherd and the sword. And the imagery of the shepherd and the sword. So pick it up with me now at the beginning of verse 7. And some way, shape, form, be thinking of Jesus simultaneously as I begin with these words, Awake, O sword, astoundingly against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. Awake, O sword. Now, we have to bear in mind that evidently something has been dormant at this point that needs to be awakened. Asleep, but now alert. But what about this sword, and why are we speaking of it as though this, this sword is a person? For God to say, awake, O sword. The reason is this. The sword represents a government. It represents a group in authority, in Christ's case, it represented the Roman Empire. Because if you and I were to read in Romans chapter 13, as Paul would write to the Romans in verse 4, for he is God's servant for your good, but if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. So now what God is doing at this point is that he is arousing, he is awakening an empire still to come, 
Now remember Zechariah, he is penning these thoughts 5th century BC. Roman Empire has not really taken root yet. Still have to get through the Greeks to get to the Romans. But here what we find is that there is this call to be awakened. And what he is awakening is this. The sword is a symbol, if you will, of the authority of the Roman figures who we part and parcel of having Jesus Christ put to death. Now, when you and I explore the verses in the gospel accounts with regard to Rome's involvement, you think right away of Pontius Pilate. And simultaneously, you think about the Jewish Sanhedrin and how they, they worked in tandem with the Roman authorities to make absolutely certain that Jesus Christ was crucified upon that cross. So here we find out, five centuries prior, notice the brilliance of this, the exactitude of this. God is saying, this is what's going to happen. He's going to awaken. It's a symbol here with regard to the sword, representing the judicial decision, the governmental involvement, we see Romans chapter 13, verse 4, talking about Rome wielding the sword. Notice what comes next. This is astounding. <clears throat> Against the man who stands next to me. Now, notice first of all, it says, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd. The sword is going to be moving against the one who is sinless. When God refers to him as my shepherd, he's talking about one who is close to him, aligned with him, side by side with him, equal to him. And then I think about that extraordinary passage in John chapter 1 and verse 8. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. And that one who's at the Father's side is Jesus Christ. When Jesus said, I and the Father are one in John 10 verse 30, the opponents of Jesus knew immediately what he was claiming and so they picked up stones in verse 31 of John 10 to, to stone him. And so now, here we find this one who's aligned with God, equal to God. In other words, the second member of the Trinity aligned with the first member of the Trinity, spiritual equality. But furthermore, you see here in verse 7, not only is he spoken of with the idea of divinity, but also humanity against the man who stands next to me. Now, when you and I begin to put this together, we realize then we are dealing with the one we know as Jesus Christ. And the sword, the sword is pointed in his direction. The one Jesus we know who came to die for our sins. So notice how God is beginning to arrange things. He arouses the sword. 
It does not self-arouse. The government comes into being. He declares this is how it's going to be. And we are dealing now with the way in which Christ's two natures are brought together so he is the perfect sacrifice to die for our sins and how the first coming leads to the second coming. I'm looking at a particular page that came out of a particular book that my former professor, Dr. Walter Kaiser, wrote. Walter's speaking, I believe, in another room in this building. It's an amazing uh, the teaching that this congregation has provided week by week to have such, a, such a, an extraordinary teacher as Walter, Dr. Kaiser, uh, speaking in our midst. He was on television, I think I remember this, and it might have been the John Ankerberg show. And he's debating a, a rabbi regarding whether there's a single coming or two comings of, of the Messiah. And the rabbi was claiming that Messiah will not come until there's a time of peace. So he argued, it could only mean a single coming. And so Walter asked him, uh, is Jesus the Messiah? That was the topic that was to be debated. I responded that the Old Testament did teach the same two comings of Messiah from the prophet Zechariah who taught, they will look on me, the one they have pierced, and they'll mourn for him as one mourns for an only child, from Zechariah 12, 10. We covered that in prior weeks, didn't we? And so Walter asked, um, I asked, is this, is this context one that speaks of Messiah also coming in a time of peace? And he agreed that it did teach Messiah would come in a time of peace. So then I asked my rabbi friend whom I was debating, who is speaking in this text? And he responded, the Almighty. And I said, good. And then how did the Almighty get pierced? Well, he replied, he did not know. Oh, Walter. Walt said, um, I've got an idea. He was on the cross. And this was in Messiah's first coming. Yet the text goes on to talk about the fact that he will also come and establish peace on the earth in another coming. The good professor is onto something here. And what he's doing now is that he is taking this idea of the striking of the shepherd, or in Zechariah 12, verse 10, the piercing of that one, tying it together and showing how two natures are needed, divinity and humanity, in one person, so that we have the perfect sacrifice to die in our place for our sins, you see. And this leads naturally then toward the one who will return. Awake, O sword, Roman government, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord hosts. He's speaking with utter authority at this point, you see. And then, God has something more to say. After he challenges the government with the idea, awake or sword, he takes it one step forward now, and then goes on, strike the shepherd. 
Now again, we're talking fifth century BC. Again, the Roman Empire has not yet come to fruition. Yet he is now stating, strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. And when you're reading that, and when I'm reading that at this point, our minds go to that gospel account in Matthew chapter 26. And when they had sung a hymn in that upper room, Jesus and the disciples, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And then Jesus said to them, you will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I'll strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. Jesus now is referencing Zechariah and he's applying it to himself. And as they're beginning to feel the pressures of everything aligned against Jesus, both Roman Empire as well as the Jewish system, here, 5th century BC, Zechariah is saying on behalf of God, strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. And that's what happened at Mark chapter 14. Disciples scattered. A little microcosm of what would happen in 70 AD when the Roman Empire then, uh, they came down hard upon Jerusalem and, and the Jews scattered. And on and on it goes. And so you have now the Jews in this scattered state. It's a result of the fact that we find this opening phrase, a reality. Strike the shepherd. The sheep will be scattered. You and I remember the story, don't we? Miracle on the River Kwai. Sure. Scottish soldiers are forced by their Japanese captors to labor on a jungle railroad. Barbarous behavior ensues. And then, and then one afternoon, something happened. Ernest Gordon writes, a shovel was missing. The officer in charge became enraged. He demanded that the missing shovel be produced or else. When nobody in the squadron budged, the officer got his gun, threatened to kill them all on the spot. It was obvious the officer meant what he said. And then finally, one man stepped forward and the officer put away his gun picked up a shovel and beat the man to death. And when it was over, the survivors picked up the bloody corpse and carried it with them to the second tool check. And this time, no shovel was missing, he writes. There had been a miscount at the first checkpoint. And the word spread like wildfire throughout the whole camp. An innocent man was willing to die to save the others. The incident had a profound effect. The men began to treat each other differently, like brothers. And when the victorious allies swept in, the survivors, reduced to human skeletons, lined up in front of their captors. But instead of attacking their captors, insisted, no. No more hatred. 
No more killing. Now what we need is forgiveness. And Ernest Gordon says, that's grace. Sacrificial love has such transforming power. What I want you to be able to see here now is grace. Two natures in one person being promised 5th century BC, an empire is raised up, wields the sword, strikes the shepherd, the sheep scattered, which is exactly what happened both with the disciples and then in a macrocosm sense of the word Israel as a whole in 70 AD when Rome came down hard upon Jerusalem. But then in that scattered state, I will turn my hand against the little ones. So generation after generation, they've been resistant to the idea that Jesus Christ is, is Messiah. You get all of that out of one verse, you see. You get all of that out of this first image that's found here in, in verse 7. Uh, the imagery of the shepherd and the, and the sword. But we're ready now for a second image. And what I need to do now is to build a bridge off of the last portion of verse 7 to allow us to be able to enter into verses 8 and 9. Because secondly, notice with me now, the sheep and the scattering. At the end of verse 7, strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. I'll turn my hand against the little ones. This happened. And now what you and I find is what Jeremiah would write about in Jeremiah 30, verse 7. Alas, that day is so great, there is none like it. It's a time of distress for Jacob. Yet he shall be saved out of it. Jacob is representative of, you see, of the Jewish people. So now you are going to take the first coming of Jesus Christ. You are tying it now to the second coming of Jesus Christ. And what begins to unfold is what we examine here now, but will develop even further over the coming weeks. In the whole land, declares the Lord, take a deep breath, in the whole land, declares the Lord, two-thirds shall be cut off and perish. Now, I did some analysis for the last 48 hours just to make sure I was up to speed. And currently, the population of Israel is somewhere in that 9 million plus mark. No. Two-thirds? What we are saying is that there is a future holocaust that is coming. And what is the leading indicator of a future holocaust? The rise of anti-Semitism. What are you seeing right now globally? The rise of anti-Semitism. And so the wise believer is one who continuously takes timeless truths, applies them in timely ways. It's not always looking for something that makes us feel good, but is looking for ways in which we can take now timeless truths and apply them in the timely way that brings honor and glory to God's name. Two-thirds? Are we talking roughly six million plus? 
<sighs> but then he goes on to say, on one third shall be left alive. So now we begin to reflect further. We think about the seriousness of what's being described here. The one who says, I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. This means then that we are forever burdened to make certain that we understand the significance of what God is doing in the days in which we live and where all these things lead. When I was considering becoming a senior pastor, considering, I had to take a year off from graduate school just to determine, settled in my mind whether or not this is really what I was, what I was meant to do. And so I took a year, went to Ohio, and was the intern pastor at the church where now Alistair Begg is a senior pastor and worked under the senior pastor, just trying to get a sense of things. My first Sunday there, evening service, Richard Vermbrandt spoke, known internationally, author of Tortured for Christ, Jewish. He had been a hardened atheist earlier in his life. But he writes, an old carpenter up in the mountains of Romania had prayed, oh God, I've served you on earth. I wish to have my reward in heaven, but I wish my reward would be such that I do not die until I bring a Jew to Christ because Jesus was from the Jewish people. Well, we're told one day, Vembrandt irresistibly drawn to this particular village out of 12,000 other villages which had no Jew. And seeing he was a Jew, Vembrandt later noted that, quote, the old carpenter quoted me, prayed for me, talked with me, shared with me for hour upon hour upon hour, gave me a Bible to read, and then we are told Vembrandt was finally saved. And what an extraordinary impact this Messianic Jew had upon Eastern Europe for the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is a, an installment of what is to come. One third shall be left alive. Now, do they breathe a sigh of relief at this point and say, okay, made it? Look at the next verse. God takes responsibility I will put this third where? In a safe place? Into the fire. And refine them as one refines silver and test them as gold is tested. And so I took a step back at that point and I pondered the significance of this statement. And I thought about the fact that this is in many ways the furnace of grace. As you and I explore verses together, such as in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 20, Moses would say to the people, but as for you, the Lord took you out of Egypt, brought you out of the iron smelting furnace to be the people of his inheritance as you now are, 
as you begin to think about that, you realize that there is purpose behind the suffering. And that times of suffering are times of testing. As my pastor Warren Wearsby would put it, the smith puts the ore into the furnace in order to purify it. And from the molten meadow, he removes the dross, and when the, with the meadow, he manufactures a useful object. Our ore, is it worth anything, he asks? What we've got to be able to understand is that throughout the Bible, God uses this imagery to demonstrate his grace. Job said, but God knows the way that I take, and when he has tested me, I'll come forth as gold. The writer of Proverbs in chapter 17, 3 said, the crucible for silver and the furnace for gold, but the Lord tests the heart. Because, folks, it's not what life does to us. It's what life reveals about us that stands out in the midst of the testing of life. And this is what God is doing. He's refining. And in his grace, he uses the fire in order to refine, as one refines silver, tests them as gold is tested. And what is the result of all this? Notice now the last part of this. And maybe you're going through testing right now and you feel like you're in the fire. Notice what it says. They will call upon my name. Calling upon the name of the Lord. You're turning to him in your point of need. When Peter and John stood before the ruling uh, authorities in Jerusalem and, and they were being challenged with the fact that they had been involved in a healing, Peter, with his extraordinary courage, was able to say, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And now here we find God saying, they will call upon my name. But does he leave it there? No. I will answer them. And folks, if you're in the fire, call on the name of Jesus. This is not an indifferent God. This is an involved God. He answers. I will say, they are my people. They will say, the Lord is my God. I'm back to back to Phil Keller. Where this shepherd, he's a young shepherd, as he recounts, and there's something very special about belonging to the good shepherd, he writes. There is a distinct mark upon the man or woman that differentiates him or her from the rest of the crowd. The day I bought my first 30 ewes, 
My neighbor and I sat on the dusty coral rails that enclosed the sheep pens and admired the choice, strong, well-bred ewes that had become mine. And turning to me as a new shepherd, he handed me a large, sharp knife, looked me in the eyes and said, Well, Philip, they're yours. Now, you're going to have to put your mark on them. And I will say they are my people. And they will say, the Lord is my God. Question. Is the marking of Jesus on you? Let's stand together. Three extraordinary verses that serve as a bridge into what comes next. And two amazing images stand out for us to consider. But through it all, Father, what we see is grace. We live in a sinful world. And utterly astounding to us is that in eternity past, it was decided that the sinless one would enter into the sinful world to die in our place for our sins. And that you at a strategic time would awaken what was dormant and then set in motion a series of events that required two natures in this one person to be the perfect substitute, the utter sacrifice to die in our place for our sins. We praise you. So thank you, Father, that we can use your word to apply the timeless truths in such timely ways as we look at what's happening in this world right now and the global changes occurring. May this congregation always be at cutting edge of being able to explain what is true in a way that's timely to make a difference, all for your honor, all for your glory. And we pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.